Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Megan Chiarelli with the Facey Medical Center. And today we're answering your questions about ADHD. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from our listeners on social media. We can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Providence. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc, that's hashtag Talk with a Doc, for a chance to hear your questions on our episodes. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started today by welcoming our expert, Dr. Megan Chiarelli with Facey. Hi, Megan. Thanks so much for having me. Well, today we're talking about ADHD, and we got a lot of questions on this topic, but let's start with a really easy one. What is ADHD? ADHD could be kind of generally summarized by calling it a disorder of executive function. Um, Executive function is related to planning, executing goals, thinking about time in the sense of accomplishing goals and consequences. That's controlled by the frontal lobes in your brain, which is the last place to develop, probably in your late 20s, which is probably why you can't rent a car until you're 25 years old. (laughs) Smart. (laughs) That we know that reason and planning and consequences is just not fully cooked until about that time. So do we see ADHD in that age group often, or is it typically discovered at a younger age? We think of ADHD as a neurodevelopmental disorder, so it's basically something that you're born with. Okay. There are ways that you can acquire ADHD over a lifetime with things like head injuries, um, treatment for certain types of cancers, lead poisoning, um, even some infections, but largely speaking, it's something that you inherit or you're born with. Interesting. And so how does that differ from HD or ADD and ADHD? What's the difference? So ADD is an old terminology. Um, In 1987, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the third third revised edition, reclassified it as ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and there's four subtypes, primarily inattentive, primarily hyperactive impulsive, combined or unspecified. So it's all the same thing. Oh, okay. And in your role here at FACI, which you, you can share a little about, but do you do you work with this on a day-to-day basis? Definitely. Um, ADHD is something I really enjoy treating because once you make the right diagnosis and offer treatment, you can see a really rapid turnaround in symptoms and dramatic life changes. How do you diagnose? So it's the gold standard of uh, diagnosis is a clinical interview. So with a psychiatrist or a psychologist, some people feel like you need to use screening tools or have neuropsychological testing. Uh, And while I think that those can be helpful in gathering data, they're not meant to be diagnostic instruments. When there's a real question about somebody having ADHD or that there's multiple things and you want to kind of tease apart what are the strengths and what are the targets for treatment, that's when neuropsychological testing can be helpful, but by no means is that a requirement for diagnosis. So you're a psychiatrist, yes, correct? But often is this diagnosis made by a primary care physician or are they just flagging it? So both can be done. I think that, you know, because this is a developmental disorder, it's very commonly picked up by pediatricians and family doctors treating children. Um, You know, it depends on unique circumstances at what age people might present to care. Um, But it's certainly within the realm of of appropriate for primary care docs, pediatricians, family medicine docs to be making a diagnosis and offering treatment. And what, if, if I was a parent and I was thinking maybe that my child had this, what would the symptoms I'd be looking for? Well, there's 
18 potential symptoms oh, in wow. the DSM. Okay. Um, so we don't have that kind of time. I'm right? So <laughs> nine under, under the inattentive part, nine under the hyperactive impulsive part. Most importantly, anytime we're making a DSM diagnosis, is we need to see clinically significant functional impairment. Um, so schools, uh, home, there should be functional impairment in more than one setting. If a child is only struggling in one setting, then that might say that there's something going on with that environment oh, or environmental mm-hmm. mismatch mm-hmm. with that child. Um, but if teachers are raising concerns, if you're seeing things in your child that are raising concerns, there's really no harm in stopping in at your pediatrician or bringing it up at your next well child visit um, and asking you know, if this is something you should be considering. And are there often maybe misdiagnosis or do you, do people think, oh, it's ADHD and it turns out maybe that it's autism or it's something else? Are, are a lot of the times are they connected? Definitely. So there's a lot of comorbidity, first mm-hmm. of all. So, um, you know, just because you have autism doesn't mean you also can't have ADHD, which is actually new as of the DSM-5 before they oh, okay. used to consider all of that as part of the autism spectrum disorder. Um, but people with... Um, intellectual disability, people with other emotional behavioral diagnoses, they can also have ADHD comorbid. The problem is, is it's very kind of colloquially out there. Like ADHD is a term that we throw around about people Mm -hmm. and it may or may not actually be referencing things that mean something to a doctor. Um, So inattention can be from depression, it can be from anxiety, it can be from circumstances, it can be from substance use. So inattention on its own is not something that's specifically diagnostic of ADHD. Um, Moreover, because we consider this a neurodevelopmental disorder, the onset has to be in childhood, so before the age of 12. Oh, it does. Okay. And you said it's genetic or hereditary. Yes. But does it always present at this young age? Not necessarily. There can be lots of mitigating factors that mean that someone doesn't rise to that level of clinically significant functional impairment until some somewhere down the line. I would say it's not uncommon for me to see kids when there's some sort of transition between schools. So when they start preschool, when they mm-hmm. move on to middle school, when they move on to high school, sometimes it doesn't happen until they're in college or even in graduate school. If someone's, let's say, very gregarious and they're um, you know, very intelligent and they have a parental situation that has supported them, maybe they just can't kind of move beyond that with the academic and other social demands of, say, law school. Interesting. So, but it's there all along? It just hasn't been triggered? Is that an accurate statement? I would say it could be there all along, but that they have other strengths that are kind of compensating Mm -hmm. for that. If you're a popular kid and your teachers like you and you're very charismatic um, and you're otherwise smart, so you don't really need to pay attention, then it might not get noticed until that academic load or other organizational demands really outstrip your natural strengths. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, um, one of the questions we got is ADHD considered a learning disability? So, no, it's not considered a learning disability. Um, People with ADHD don't necessarily have problems learning, as in like writing memories. It's not at all uncommon for kids with ADHD to have a learning disability. So if they have like a specific mathematics disorder, or if they have dyslexia or something else like that, that should be tested at the school level. So there's like school psychologists will do assessments to see if someone rises to the threshold of requiring additional services in the school setting. And that's varies based on your school, your district and your state. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we have a lot of questions, so I'm going to keep going in. Um, One says, I've been taking Adderall since I was 12, and now I'm in my mid-30s. Is it possible I can stop taking it? It may be possible. Um, About two-thirds of people are going to continue to have symptoms into their adulthood. 
when I'm making this diagnosis in a child, I always try to kind of bring it full circle and say, symptoms like this wouldn't persist in our genome unless they had a purpose. So if we were still nomadic tribes people, it would help to have somebody who would kind of jump to every twig snap and rustle in the bushes. It might keep you safe from other tribesmen or wild animals, for example. So these aren't necessarily bad things, you know, that they could be seen as strengths in some situations. So it's possible that some people could go on to create a life for themselves that really, um, really uses those as a strength. So if someone is more of an outdoors person, perhaps they're an artist or perhaps they're like a chemist or an inventor, something that doesn't necessarily, you know, invite them to just sit and stare at a paper all day long. Maybe if they were an accountant, they might need to keep getting treatment, but it it really depends. Um, If they come off of the medication and they find that they still have symptoms, they can go back on. Are there any um, side effects or long-term implications of taking a, a drug like this for so long? For people who start in childhood, the effects actually seem to be neuroprotective when they have well, what done. What does that mean? They, that it actually seems to make the brain of people with ADHD look more and act more like the brain of people without ADHD when they've done functional MRI studies. Um, so whether that means something clinically, we're, we can't say, but having two brain images and say, the kids who got treatment, it looks closer to normal than the kids who didn't get treatment. Certainly seems compelling. Um, for people who start as an adult, that effect probably isn't there because their brain is, is really done. Do you quote unquote outgrow ADHD then? Not necessarily. So when your brain's fully developed, like in your late thir- late 20s, early 30s, that's, that's what you're going to have, right? You know, so you will have whatever strengths and weaknesses you have at that point. So if you still have significant symptoms, you might need to continue treatment. And this doesn't just apply to, you know, people in their youth. I mean, it makes sense for even retirees or stay-at-home moms. There does require a certain amount of organization, mm-hmm. um, paying attention while driving, that we just Actually, uh, there's been studies that show that people who have untreated HD have ADHD have twice the rates of serious traffic incidents as people with untreated. Oh, that makes sense, though. Makes yeah. complete sense. Wow. Are there things that are harder for people to do with ADHD as they get older? I, you mentioned, like, an accounting job. That could be one of those. But are there just certain things that typically we just say maybe just avoid in general? Because there's so many symptoms and, you know, in psychiatry, we are treating syndromes. We're not treating a disease. Um, We're just really looking for the symptom improvement. Uh, Things like organization, forgetfulness, a lot of times those things persist. I would say the hyperactivity doesn't look the same as it does in like a seven-year-old child. It might be more of an internal feeling of restlessness Mm -hmm. um, and continued social issues or emotional issues that people with ADHD might have. Um, We don't see any long-term side effects from taking the medication, if anything, it seems to be helpful. Okay. Are there ways to treat ADHD without medication? There are some studies that show that daily vigorous exercise can be somewhat beneficial and that really high dose omega-3s, um, it's kind of minimal and it really depends on the person. Um, it's not something I would necessarily move toward just because the effect size is, is not so impressive. Gotcha. Um, So one question we got said, if I choose to take medication to manage my ADHD, what are the types of meds that I would have to take? The usual first-line treatment is going to be a stimulant medication, so either a methylphenidate or an amphetamine parent drug, and there's lots of them. Um, They've been branded, and they have different uh, strengths, different uh, release types. Uh, There's patches, there's liquids, there's chewables, because 
we're treating oftentimes little kids or mm -hmm. people who might have trouble swallowing. Um, so those are the two main families of drugs. About half of people will respond to either class of drugs and the other half is gonna preferentially respond to like one drug family over another. And it can take a little bit of tweaking to find something that's the right fit. The most common side effects that people can experience are appetite suppression, insomnia, and irritability. Oh, interesting, okay. Do you find that parents are reluctant to medicate their kids? It depends on the family. Mm -hmm. I think that in some ways ADHD is a more accepted diagnosis than others. And because of that, people might specifically be coming in to get an ADHD evaluation. By the time they're coming to a psychiatrist, usually a lot of people have raised this as a concern for them. Um, the, certainly no one wants to have a child who has an illness, but if there's something to have, you might as well have something that's highly treatable. True, very true. Well, this question says, it seems like ADHD is becoming more popular. I don't know if that's the right word, but that was the question. In teens today, is that the case? So I you know I think that perhaps some of the stigma is is improving with this, and I don't know if that's just because of how long ADHD has been you know described in literature, and now now we're to the point where people's parents, people's grandparents were perhaps diagnosed and treated as children, so maybe the stigma isn't there in quite the same way. Um, it certainly doesn't become more common as a teen, but like I said, perhaps the rigors of high school might uh, make those symptoms more obvious right. and have people seek treatment at that time. It definitely uh, there's. A lot of people who will abuse these medications, they are stimulants, they're uppers, um, and some people like the effects of being able to stay up all night and study. Um, the There was one uh, study that showed that people who were taking stimulant medications that weren't prescribed to them, it actually didn't improve their grades at all. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. But they were able to stay up longer. They were staying up, but it wasn't doing them any good. Interesting. I think stigma is really interesting that you mentioned that because when you said a few minutes ago that it's not necessarily a bad thing, right, that in other cultures or in other time frames that this would have been a really important thing. I've never heard that. I've never heard anybody talk about ADHD in kind of a positive manner. How do you think stigma is, has been impacting people? Like have pe people, I feel like parents are saying, I don't want to say my kid has a quote unquote disease or I don't want people to think I'm a bad parent for medicating. Do you start seeing stigma reduction really improve the way that you're able to treat patients? Definitely. The buy-in is something that's enormously important. We all know that placebo effect is is very effective in many studies. These drugs far outweigh placebo, by the way, when they're compared. <laughs> um, but having the buy-in and having it feel like a choice that people are making, um, I think that that is the biggest part of the relationship and the treatment. Are there like counseling things or, or family? Like, are you treating the whole family when you're treating a kid or a young person? The hallmark of this treatment really is medication. Okay. For young kids, like kids under six, we try behavioral interventions first. And certainly if a family or a child is opposed to taking a medication, then we might try some behavioral interventions. But this isn't really something, you know, if we think about this as a brain disease, it's not something that we can just build in accommodations and expect it to completely resolve. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue having a conversation about ADHD. When I'm away, when I can't stay, I know my heart breaks every night that I'm without you. Oh, my dear, I need you to hear. There's a reason for the miles that surround us. One day I'ma look in your eyes Tell you you were made to shine Tell you to go out and find, out and find What makes you come alive One day I'ma point to the sky Tell you you were made to fly When I'm gone for too long It's hard to handle You know I'm trying to be a good example 
when it gets hard to handle No, I'm trying to be a good example So you go and find your road I promise you will know the way and when it's calling to you And I'll be there, I'll be a cheerleader I'll believe in you no matter what you choose, yeah And every time I gotta leave, you gotta know it's killing me Well, we're back on Talk with the Doc with our guest, Dr. Megan Chiarelli, and we are talking about ADHD here today at Facey. Um, it seems like we're seeing a lot more characters on TV and in the movies that are portraying ADHD and similar condition, uh, conditions. Um, I saw uh, Percy Jackson, the director of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, said he took on the project strictly because the main character, Percy, has ADHD and dyslexia, and he wanted to normalize it for kids and give them someone cool to relate to. Do you think it's helping parents and kids better understand the signs and normalize the conversation to see it in Hollywood? I think visibility with anything is going to be helpful. This is a disease that affects 5% of the world's child population and about 2.5% of the adults in the U.S. So there's a lot of people out there with ADHD. Absolutely. And um, most of them aren't getting treatment is the sad part, especially as people move into adulthood. Um, And I don't know if that's reticent on the part of the patient not wanting to get treatment or think about this as something that could be helped or if it's sort of a gap in the comfortable, uh, the skill and comfort of the uh, primary care doctors in the adult sphere making the diagnosis, which is different than in the pediatric setting. Well, actually, that was a question I had for you too, is are primary care physicians becoming more, I don't want to use the word educated, but are they getting more interested in this or are they just seeing it more often? Are they able to diagnose it easier now as we get further along? I think we really would have to separate pediatric doctors from Mm -hmm. adult medicine doctors Mm -hmm. because for pediatric doctors, I think that this is really bread and butter. This is something that they see very frequently and they have the benefit of seeing the the person as a child and they also have another reporter in the form of a parent. Right. Um, so sometimes when a kid walks into your office, it's very apparent that there are symptoms of ADHD going on. So having the parent report and if there's any school reports you can get as well, that's very helpful because as I said earlier, the diagnosis has to be on or the symptoms have to be onset before age of 12. If somebody's coming into you at age of 25, finding out if they had functional impairment before the age of 12 is a little, a little harder. bit more digging. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it re- requires perhaps getting information from a parent, old school report cards, and that can be a challenge, especially if the person really does have ADHD. They may not have all their report cards organized neatly. <laughs> That's probably a very accurate statement. Um, well, one of the questions we got said, I'm an adult. Does my ADHD affect children? 
So I'm guessing that is more on a hereditary question or? So we know that it's highly heritable. About two thirds of ADHD can be attributable to genetic cause. Two thirds, wow. For any kid with di- with a diagnosis of ADHD, there's about a 50-50 chance that one of their parents has ADHD, okay. diagnosed or not. And I, yeah. In fact, I've actually worked with a couple of kids who, after making the diagnosis, their parents went on and got diagnosed and treated themselves. Okay. So there's a there was a positive ripple effect with that. Um, we probably this is like genetic in the sense of like the actual genes that we pass on, but you could also consider that there may be a nurture component to it as well, being parented by someone who struggled with organization and emotional impulsivity might impact how you relate to the world as well. It's interesting you say that because I have a couple of friends who live I would say somewhat of a chaotic lifestyle and their kids love coming to my house because it's very organized because I'm the opposite. I'm the OCD side, right? Everything in a place. I mean, boxes with names on them, right? But they, they've, their kids have actually said to me, I feel like my mom is a little out of control and the kids are not. And so it's, it's actually very challenging for them. Do you give advice to ADHD people as adults when they have kids for how to maybe combat that or how to make it a better environment for their kids? So medication is really going to be the hallmark of the treatment. So hopefully that they're able to see some of the like measurable improvement in how they're able to structure their lives. Some of what you're describing is just like a parent-child mismatch. You know, <laughs> we aren't always a perfect fit for our parents or for our children, um, but it's not inherently damaging. Sure, sure. Well, speaking of damaging, one of our questions said, I just found out I'm pregnant. Is it safe for me to take my ADHD medications while I'm pregnant? So there's been some recent studies on this. Um, If someone has mild to moderate ADHD and they think that they can come off of their medications, then it might be a good time to try. If they have more severe ADHD, such that they're at risk of having serious traffic incidents, they're at risk of being so disorganized that they're gonna lose their job and therefore their health insurance, then we you know, wanna maintain those people on their medication because of course mom's health and safety is going to be reflected in baby's health and safety. If someone can't come off of their medications or is really not willing to out of concern that they're gonna have out of control symptoms, it seems like the amphetamine derivative drugs have the same baseline, same risk as baseline, so compared to placebo, the methyl Phenidate drugs did show like a very teeny, slightly increased risk of, say, a cardiac mal- malformation, oh, okay. but again, extremely small, like on the order of like a 3% increased risk from baseline, because of Got course, there's it. always a baseline risk sure. of having a child with a major malformation. Uh, okay. Um, well, this question says, is there a connection between smoking and ADHD? There is. That's oh, another there is. big risk okay. factor. Yes. So, um, so smoking during pregnancy increases the risk of baby having um, having ADHD. And when they've been trying to isolate, you know, what genes are responsible for ADHD, they usually come back to the dopamine pathway. And nicotine actually activates some of these same pathways. And okay. some of the same genes are implicated, and those more likely to get addicted to nicotine. So there does seem to be some connection. But aside from the fetal exposures, it's not clear cut right now. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, Should I tell my employer that I have ADHD was another question we got. What are your thoughts on that? If you have an employer who you think is going to be open and accommodating um, and you need work accommodations, then perhaps if you think that your employer could see this as a liability, Mm -hmm. then perhaps it's something best not shared. It's really going to depend on your work environment. And do you normally encourage your patients to share, though, that they have ADHD with close friends and family so that they know kind of what maybe you're experiencing? I usually leave that kind of thing to them. I think some of the most powerful feedback I get is when somebody starts a medication and they get unsolicited input about 
things are going so much better what's going on here mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. i really like hearing that as a doc because i know then these third party reporters are not seeing just placebo effect right? right like they're seeing like actual clinical effect and i think that's really powerful that must be nice yes very yeah. rewarding when you first do a diagnosis how do you how do you tell the patient and i assume if it's kids you're telling the parents but is it scary for them is it concerning for them do a lot of them say i kind of already knew a lot of them do come in with that question at the ready. So, um, you know, if they already strongly suspect ADHD, then that conversation goes a lot easier. And like I said, I do kind of frame this as these are your strengths and these are, you know, the target areas for treatment. And usually, you know, when I'm working with even a small child, I ask if there was a medication that might help you maybe not get in trouble so much at school, would that be something you wanted to try? If you don't like it, you don't have to keep taking it. Um, A lot of people are really concerned about the medication making them into a robot. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if anybody saw the the show uh, Kimmy Schmidt, but they had mm-hmm. a, a medication called Discipline, and it said it was supposed <laughs> to treat Kanye West syndrome. Um, and uh, that's not what our medications do, right? Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to turn your kids into little automatons. Right. They are not going to like perfectly behave all the time. And same for adults. Like if you have a certain set of symptoms that you'd like treated, to expect 100% improvement on all of those measures is a little bit unrealistic. So I think setting realistic expectations, understanding that they still have to kind of own this. Having ADHD doesn't make you exempt from consequences. Mm-hmm. In fact, if anything, they need more immediate and more kind of salient consequences to okay. reinforce good behavior. Because if we think about this almost like putting glasses on a person who has a vision impairment, you, you still need the glasses, right? Mm-hmm. So if the medications are the glasses, they still need the accommodations there. You can't think that, okay, well, we've been on medications for a while, they know the ropes, and then remove them and think, well, why can't you see? Well, that's a lot. I think people do that with anxiety and depression medication. They take it and then they feel better and then they go off of it. So you do see that with ADHD a little bit. Absolutely. And it's not dangerous. Some people do that intentionally, that they only take their medications on work days or school days um, so that they kind of have a break because of the appetite suppression issue. Weight gain can be a problem, especially in children when they're supposed to be kind of like maintaining their growth curves. Um, So some people intentionally break over summers and, and school holidays as well. It's not dangerous, but sometimes there can be a struggle to adapt. Um, Certainly in kids who aren't able to explain their internal experience very well, Mm -hmm. it could be very frustrating to go from being able to follow directions and be in control to being out of control and not understanding why. Yeah. When you first start medication, how does that process work? I assume that it's a dosage thing. You have to probably, is it trial and error? How does it typically work? So we start with either one of the families, methylphenidates or amphetamine derivatives. In kids who are six or older, I usually do uh, extended release medications. Otherwise, the drugs wear off super quickly. You have to dose them two to three times a day. And I think that asking somebody who has problems with organization and follow through Mm -hmm. to remember to take a medication three times a day is a little bit ridiculous. Um, It can also be stigmatizing if they're at work or at school and they need to kind of like run to the nurse's office or remember to bring pills to school. Um, So it starts low and we move up as tolerated until they are having a an appreciable impact on their symptoms and they don't want to try the next highest dose usually when people are coming back and saying like I just wonder if the next dose might be more helpful. It's worth a try. Worst mm-hmm. case scenario, you just go back to the last dose. And certainly if you're having side effects, you don't have to be married to that drug. There's a gazillion drugs that the drug companies have gone wild with creating. So we can use those all as tools in our toolkit. So when when you are looking at that next dose, how do you know that it's not that it becomes too much? Is it is it become 
lethargic or what does that look like? So usually it would be more of the appetite suppression, more okay. of irritability. Um, a lot of kids, their appetite gets so strongly suppressed that they get just super hangry. Yeah. Um, and that causes some sort of like issues of its own. Um, adults obviously can describe this a little bit better for themselves mm-hmm. and many adults are welcoming of some weight loss or appetite suppression. I wouldn't symptoms. mind the appetite suppression myself. Um. <laughs> so it's a little bit different. Sure. Well, I think you kind of touched on this, but one of the questions we got said, I was diagnosed with ADHD a few years ago as a teenager. Will I have to take medication for the rest of my life? You don't have to do anything. If the medications are helpful for you, it's not considered dangerous to continue to take those medications as prescribed by your doctor. Um, For people who are driving, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the rates of serious traffic incidents being double in untreated versus treated, I recommend that those people take their medications every single day and don't take those same holidays. Um, but it, it is not inherently risky, but it is absolutely a choice. And what about medication mixing? Are there certain kinds of medication that you can't take with this one? So if you had a comorbidity or you had two diseases, you had something, is there anything that has like a big concern or a red flag? Not commonly prescribed medications. We know that people who have ADHD, especially untreated, have higher rates of substance abuse. So Mm -hmm. if somebody is abusing stimulants, then we have to consider alternative medications. There's non-stimulant medications that we use both on and off-label to treat um, ADHD. They're typically not as effective, but if you as the one person who responds are are there is effective for, then it doesn't matter what the studies say. So there's lots of options, but we just need to be careful if people are abusing substances. I think that's a really important topic. What are we as a healthcare system and a society doing to try to combat that? Because there is a lot of that. And and my other concern, I guess, is that I hear a lot of people like parents are taking their kids' medication. Like, then what does that do for the child, right? Because then they don't have enough medication. What do we do about this? Well, that's a, there's, a, there's a lot of pieces to that to unpack. Um, whenever I'm prescribing a controlled drug to my patients, I reserve the right to drug test them at any time. And I don't oh, care if that's a four-year-old, okay. because if the four-year-old's urine drug test comes up negative, then I want to know where the drug is. Right. Um, so sometimes parents are not able to be responsible with medications for whatever reasons of their own. And then we might need to look at non-stimulant options or really trying to beef up supports to the family or other behavioral interventions. Um, but again, it's untreated ADHD that has the higher risk of, um, of abusing substances. So if we are identifying this earlier, ideally before the age of 13, hopefully we can head off some of the demoralization, depression, and anxiety that can result from having repeated school and social failures mm-hmm. and then taking that into adulthood. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, if a, if a child has ADHD, there's a 50-50 chance that one of their parents does too. Right. So perhaps that parent really actually just needs to get evaluated and treated right. on their own instead of siphoning off their child's medication. Do you do you often have to say that to the parent? Like, have you considered getting tested or a diagnosis or... When I'm asking about family history, um, sometimes that can kind of come up, um, and usually it's more inquisitive on their part. Um, mm, okay. But, you know, I, I don't offer that diagnosis if they're not my patient. That makes sense. Okay. Well, again, I think you've kind of touched on this, but we did get this question from a few people, which is, can toddlers and babies have ADHD? So probably not. Um, I mean, if you looked at the diagnostic criteria, they have to be um, age inappropriate. So if someone Mm -hmm. is a baby or a toddler, I think it'd be really hard to evaluate if they were immature for age on some of these things. Um, They largely have to do with activity, organization, memory, um, and and 
I already mentioned activity, but babies aren't doing a whole lot of that, right? <laughs> and I think if we if we looked at the diagnostic criteria, like every toddler would have ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a kind of a seminal study called the uh, Preschool ADHD Treatment Study, PATS for short, and it looked at treating ADHD under the age of five, and actually Adderall is approved for treatment oh, okay. of ADHD in kids three and up. The study actually identified methylphenidate as being a preferred treatment, um, but it, it can happen. It's it's uh, very unusual. The first step in treatment for a kid under six is behavioral interventions. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time. Is there any one takeaway you would want to give our listeners about ADHD? So I know that there's a lot of things in the media about ADHD be, being overdiagnosed, and I want to say a couple things about that. Number one is that overdiagnosis implies a comparison to a reference point, and we don't have a reference point, mm-hmm. right? This has been described in the literature since the late 1700s, so this is a real thing. We know that the medications work. People have been using them since the 1930s, right. um, so we have a lot of data on this now. Um, the other thing that I want to say is with regard to overdiagnosis, it's really underdiagnosed in anyone who's not a white boy. So if you're a girl or if you're a person of color, then you're much more likely to be overlooked. And whether that's related to social cultural factors or expectations, um, girls are more likely to have primarily the inattentive type and not necessarily be climbing the walls. So they may be less likely to be brought into care. But if you suspect that your child is struggling with inattention or other ADHD symptoms, your first stop should be your pediatrician. Oh, that's great. That's great advice and great information. Well, thank you, Dr. Kirilli with Facey Medical for joining us today and everyone for listening and sending in your questions. You can follow Facey Doctors on Twitter at Facey Medical and on Facebook at Facey Medical Group. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Facey Medical Center and Providence. Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, visit future.pshahealth.org. Thanks for listening. 